Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. So my guest today on the Cappuccino podcast for the third time running, which means she's now the guest that's been on the most. So congratulations to you. Why, well, thank you, Brian. Also known as Dr. No, a psychologist of 30 years, a speaker, a blogger, a best-selling author, a uh, book of overthinking, book of knowing, breast support. Uh, she's that also done the book of angst, which we're here to talk about today. She specializes in depression, anxiety, work-related stress, worry, social anxiety, PTSD, She's a breast cancer survivor. She's been a radio host, I believe, as well. She once tried, and I love that story, it caused tears to come down my face, once tried to cure somebody with a phobia of spiders with, without sort of kind of realising that maybe her spider phobia could get in the way as well. Uh, she's bipolar and once actually had an episode where she viewed herself as the second messiah who was possibly conceived by Walt Disney and Elizabeth Taylor and that is why she is one of my favourite guests. <laughs> Welcome back, Gwendolyn. Hey, thank you, Brian. Right. fabulous kind words. Uh, last time we spoke, COVID was just beginning to raise its head. How did you handle it personally? Well, I had to quickly adjust to doing um, virtual consultations with clients which which was surprisingly more draining than sitting across the room from someone so we all had with the office closed we all had to Skype and FaceTime and Zoom and all that sort of stuff and then I used the um, time inside to um, to write the book of angst mm, which I see you put in the beginning as I'm beginning to type this, uh, where we've just gone into a national lockdown. Yeah. So it's good use of productivity, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Now, your latest book, The Book of Angst, is dedicated to Dr. Lorna Breen, who died not just as a result of COVID, which she had, but obviously due to her self-inflicted injuries, because she was so caring so much for her patients and her colleagues that the work told, I guess, just got too much for her. So my question is, with that, and as a frontline worker thank you for the dedication to people like you because those people were amazing in COVID and I know that we've got overseas listeners and they are still amazing so please keep up doing what you are doing it's just amazing how long do you think the mental the psychological aspect of COVID-19 is going to be with us many years Brian and I'll, I'll tell you why because I because Lorna Brain it was very evident to those of us in the trade that you know that what took her to the to the point of killing herself was in fact the post-traumatic stress disorder i mean i don't think we can imagine what it must be like to just have body after body after body being stacked up in containers outside the hospital i mean it's just unimaginable and so it was actually the post-traumatic stress um that profoundly impacted on her and the reason why it's called post-traumatic stress is that it doesn't usually happen properly until the crisis is over because people go into like we used to call it shell shock in the first and second Mm -hmm, world war mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder came out of the research with the vietnam vets and um, and of course it was happening when they get back from the war you know after they've they've left the horror 
But then, of course, what happens is that we start to relive in a very real sense, not just a memory, actually relive the trauma. Mm. So once all our frontline workers, whenever that may, whenever that happens, but you know they're doing less shifts a week, or they're you know they're starting to slow down, we um, hypothesise with some certainty that that's going to be when people really start to hit the deck. Mm. And I'm guessing that health anxiety or hypochondria is maybe you and I used to know it back in the 80s, um, and PTSD are going to be the number one sort of anxieties for health professionals and psychology professionals. Uh, how do you believe that we turn the corner if we ever do, or do you think it's with us now for a good sort of one or two generations? That's one of my tricky questions. Yeah, that is tricky. Um, In the immediate, short to medium term, it's very, very hard. I mean, if you look at Tokyo, you look at Brazil, you look at the States, the figures are still on the rise. So even the acute trauma that's going on, we've got no idea when that's going to stop. No. Um, And with the post-traumatic stress disorder, again... You know, it may take a little while to turn up. It can be triggered because just a sidestep from that question, if you said to me, what have I noticed getting exacerbated as a direct result of COVID? One, clearly health anxiety. Mm -hmm. Two, obsessive compulsive disorder Mm -hmm. because you've got germophobia with Mm -hmm. OCD. And then you've also got obsessive compulsive hand washing. Well, let's face it, particularly during lockdown, we were obsessively hand washing Mm -hmm. and getting told to especially hand wash. Mm -hmm. But we, fortunately, don't have the sort of condition where you're washing your hands until they bleed. No. So obsessive compulsive disorder was aggravated. And then I had one case of um, someone who's post-traumatic stress disorder from childhood because her father used to lock her in cupboards Mm -hmm. um, in lockdown. Can you see the trigger? Mm. Locked in cupboards. Lockdown. So so all of that stuff and those memories were from when she was six and seven, eight years of age. Mm. So this is the thing about these conditions is that... um, See, even with postnatal depression, postnatal depression sometimes doesn't doesn't even turn up till say a year after the baby's mm. born. Mm. There's just so much we don't know about this stuff, Brian. No, exactly right. When lockdown actually happened, what were you doing to keep yourself well? I mean, for me, we were all going out for walks and we were trying not to watch too much screen time and that type of stuff. What were you doing to keep yourself in check, I should say? It's pretty much the same as everybody. You know, like, obviously, I was working on the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I was seeing clients online. Mm-hmm. Certainly going for a walk was something that, you know, I do. And then finding an online wine supplier I found really helpful. <laughs> now, the book events you began writing, like you've said, in April 2020 during New Zealand's nationwide COVID lockdown. Um, was it easier to write than your other two books? given the fact the whole world was actually going topsy-turvy with angst at the time? 
I tell you what, what, it, what was difficult, Brian, was actually getting the COVID out of my head. Mm. Um, so I did the dedication mm -hmm. and then just a little author's note and acknowledged COVID at the beginning, but then I needed to return to the focus of what the Book of Angst was mm. about, because otherwise I was going to end up writing the Book of COVID. Well, mm. there's going to be millions of those. You're not wrong. You're yeah. not wrong. Now, worry, as you say, in the Book of Angst is, a, is a, at pandemic proportions. It's a manifestation of COVID, and uncertainty is the fuel on the fire of worry. We've spoken prior in different podcasts about the combination of worry and sleep deprivation being absolutely toxic to us yeah, and yeah. to our mental health. That being the first big key indicator for people that not all as well, how long should you leave it, that those sleepless nights and that worry and that angst before you go, actually, you know what, I might need to go and see somebody here. How long would you leave it, do you think? Well, <clears throat> it's amazing what people will put up with <clears throat> yes. for lengthy periods mm -hmm. of time. I mean, if I'm working, say, say someone is seeing me clinically, and, um, oh, you know, I really want to see a psychologist because I don't want to take medication. And I'll say, well, what's your sleep looking like? Oh, terrible, you know, wake at two, worrying, can't get back to sleep. And I say, okay, look, here's the deal. We use, in the clinic I work in, the rule of three. So you can have, if you have two crap nights, you've got to take something on the third night. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have one and three Otherwise, then it does really start to take effect. And, you know, Brian, the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, there are over-the-counter medications now like melatonin mm -hmm. and tart cherry, which have actually got um, evidence to show that they're effective. And none of us in psychiatry, um, not that I can prescribe, but psychiatrists and doctors do not like prescribing sleep medication no. because it's dependency producing so if you can you know strike up a bit of a thing with some melatonin or something like that clearly it's a preferable option yeah and having once experienced a family member's uh, a spoonful of tart cherry once i can tell you it's an experience like none other just quietly um worry is the base of most forms of anxiety there's amongst others and you mentioned a lot of these in the book of angst and i don't want to go into great detail about them that's why i want people to go out and buy the book is ocd anorexia social anxiety do you think that lots of people are beginning to jump the gun a little bit when it comes to to worry um and you explain this really well in the book the difference between sort of worry and a phobia and anxiety by giving themselves sort of a very early diagnosis of anxiety from maybe something like Dr. Google, for instance, um, it's, I've seen so a lot of the kids that I see, their parents will go, oh, they suffer from anxiety, and I'll say, oh, have they had a diagnosis? And they're like, no, 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 but they definitely suffer from anxiety. When we get, when diagnostic terms enter the lay population, first, first example is depression. Now, depression is a debilitating illness. Mm -hmm. But people who've got a parking ticket, how was your day? Shit, I'm depressed. Yep. What happened? 
parking tickets, my third one in a month, I've got demerit points. So, you know, a bit pissed off, yep. a bit frustrated, depressed, no. Um, the other one that's come in with a hiss and a roar um, is ADHD mm-hmm. and kids. You know, I mean, there's a big difference between the illness, the, the biochemical um, imbalance mm-hmm. of ADHD than just having a kid whose parents might be arguing all the time and their behaviour's disturbed. And um, so I've really noticed that a lot is, um, you know, kids with this ADHD diagnosis. Mm. Um, But the interesting thing is the drugs that are used for ADHD, Brian, are what we call paradoxical. So if you and I took a Ritalin and we haven't got ADHD... We'd be speeding up, the music would be loud, we'd read your party. Mm-hmm. But someone with ADHD, the Ritalin slows them down. So it's a paradoxical effect. It slows them down so they can concentrate. Yeah. So it, it's odd that a stimulant mm. would slow someone down. So there's your diagnosis. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think anxiety... Um, probably has slipped into that um, overuse of, of, of the term, how you're feeling, oh, you know, anxious. or mm. And this is why I chose the title angst, because people these days, how you feel, oh, you know, a bit angsty. Mm. Mm. You know, Not whereas wrong. the origins of the word, I don't know, it was Dutch or German, angst, angst yes. I think it was German, that was the crisis of being, mm. the existential crisis. So, But we use words differently and then we overuse clinical terms. Mm. I'm guessing 15, 20 years ago, you would have had people come into your clinic and your waiting room, and when you'd first spoken to them and said, how are you feeling, what's going on, they would have said, oh, look, I can't sleep, I'm beginning to think about stuff, etc., etc." Are you now finding the flip side of that where they're basically coming into your waiting room and going, I think I've got anxiety, I think I might have post-traumatic stress disorder, and I'm a little bit obsessive-compulsive about a few things as well? Yep, yep. Yep. People are more literate. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that um, Google, you know, plays a part in that because if people are experiencing things, particularly if they have got a bit of health anxiety, mm. they're onto that Google, you know, looking for symptom checklists. Yes, yep. Yeah, I've got that one, I've got that one, I haven't got that one. Oh, okay, maybe I've got this one over here. Yeah, which you, again show a great example of in the book of angst okay so obsessive compulsive disorder is the biggie of all of the family of anxiety as you call it because of the fact that there's uh, lots of evidence that points towards genetics playing a large component towards Mm. actually having it um, or the risk of developing the disorder which can be crippling I know we've had previous guests on the show who used to do things like turning door handles 27 times before she could walk through the door running up down a flight of stairs 15 times Um, Many people have become obsessive with hand washing and sanitising like we've spoken about during COVID. How can you spot the difference between a habit, a learnt behaviour and OCD? Because obviously, like you said, during COVID, we all turned into these hand washing people. I mean, I stopped myself one shift and actually counted. And during an eight hour shift, I'd washed my hands 34 times. Mm. And I actually thought to myself, actually, I need to stop this. I don't work 
at a fast food outlet where every sort of 15 minutes I need to sanitise my hands. Mm. Um, but how do you spot the difference? Uh, well, like I said, with OCD being this really big, nasty, genetically, well, a big amount of its genetic predisposition, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're not just doing the one thing. They've got all sorts of things that, that they're doing just to get through the day. Mm. Um, I mean, I was talking to a young client this morning, and you know, because you often hear um, the comfort dogs, Mm -hmm, you know, that mm -hmm. dogs are really good for anxiety. Mm. And I said to this younger dog, I said, oh, have you got a family dog? Yep, yep. I said, how's that? How's that? Severe OCD. She said, well, I can't touch him. Because, of course, she's got the germaphobia stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and then she's got the checking and the rituals and the, you know, so it's very, very severe and it starts in childhood. Mm. And it starts and it just grows in severity and as I mentioned in the book, it has got nothing to do with parenting. Mm. Bad parenting will not create OCD. No. You know, yeah. the, and, you know, with someone with OCD, I won't usually do any work with them until they're medicated. Mm. Because it's so intense and it's such a drive that to start suggesting the stuff I, I do, you know, in the back of the therapy stuff in the back of mm-hmm. my books, just isn't going to get through, Brian. No, no. Now, like every night watching, especially the American, Canadian and British news, uh, there always seems to be a segment with a health worker, a frontline worker, crying, pleading, asking people to be more thoughtful about what they're doing with regard to COVID. Um, now, in the Book of Angst, you say that post-traumatic impact of, the, of these people will be phenomenal. What's some of the early prevention steps that the peacetime soldiers, as you call them, I love that phrase um the frontline workers could take now then look let's be honest we all you and i both know we those people myself included we're never going to be bulletproof because we're human but what's some steps that we could take to make sure that possibly ptsd doesn't get very big for us later on well you see as you and i and everybody listening knows we are so fortunate Mm. in this country and yes lockdown wasn't easy and yes health professionals were doing extra shifts and that sort of stuff and having to close up to go you know and having to shut down selective surgery you know so yes okay but um not at sort of tsunami proportions you know so the dhbs um do have like and the police do as well an employee assistance program where you know Mm -hmm. you're entitled to free sessions with a with a counselor usually and so there are those sorts of things um but you see in somewhere like the uk nearly 12 months in lockdown Mm. hundred thousand dead um x you know however many a day dying 
you see, where's the time? Where, where are the resources of health professionals mm. to be able to say, look, take a week off and here's a thousand pounds to spend on some psychological assistance. Mm. So it seems to me that as per usual, um, there will be this aftermath and then we're going to be cleaning up another mess, mm. a mental health mess. Mm. Um, with mental health services worldwide under-resourced. Mm. Mm, exactly, and I guess the spin-off effects, like you mentioned in the Book of Angst, the fear of flying, for instance, for somebody who's got the fear of flying now, that flying has just gone up a couple of de- degrees now because of the mm. fact that even when we do get to fly again, hear me God, um, you know, possibly, who knows, there could be somebody on the plane who's got COVID. My goodness, where yeah. do I go with that? All right, so COVID hit New Zealand, and I, like many other peacetime soldiers, went out into the community to ensure lockdown and also visit and make sure that some of the new arrivals, because that's what we were doing at that stage, were still isolating at home. Now, question from me, just personally, is the first two or three days of that were a little bit tense and anxious for uh, myself and my partner. Uh, and we worked together for six weeks. There was a sort of, oh, well, you know, if I get this, what's going to happen? Where am I going to go? I'll have to isolate in the garage, that type of stuff. Processes weren't really sort of firmly in place with everybody because we were dealing with the unknown. After two or three days, there's a shift of sort of the old Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine. What, me, worry? I'll, I'll be fine, no problems, good as gold. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's that's just indicative of... Uh, first responders, healthcare workers, they just sort of get on and do it until the wheels actually come and fall off the carts and then it, it's too late? Or is it a just sort of the quick lads, shoulders to the wheel and let's get on with it? Bit of both. Mm. Bit of both. I mean, you know, it's a funny little word, you know, if you're not a particularly religious person, but which I'm not, but it's sort of like, I think helping professionals and professions are like a calling mm. you know it's it, and and the passion for it and the 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 sense of um being sort of worthy i don't really like that word mm-hmm. but the sense of sort of contributing and helping people is so strong that the helpers put themselves second mm. I mean, I I have a a relationship with um, MPS, which is the medical practitioners sort of insurance people, and um, you know, so I'll see a number of doctors during the year, and you know, they're two years behind the eight ball because they're so busy not taking time off and mm. looking after everybody else. So by the time you get to see them, they're really burned out, depressed, you know. So I think that the the helping professionals do sacrifice their own well-being for the well-being of others. It's just part of the gig, don't you think? I guess, yeah, probably. That's what I thought. The only thing I could logically sort of put it to, and this is going to sound kind of a bit strange, but watching some of um, some other disasters and you can see people running into burning buildings, it's... It's not logical behaviour, but I guess it's just, it must be an inbred thing or a genetic characteristic, who knows, that's for another day. Now listen, I've listened to many interviews with you where an interviewer attempts to get you to define being 
bipolar or having OCD in a snippet of maybe sort of 15 to 20 seconds. Um, do you ever get tired of, I mean, OCD, for instance, people have done like PhD studies on OCD. Do you ever get tired of trying to make it kind of like a, a news snippet um, and trying to drill it down so it's like, well, in sort of very brief, it's this, this and this? I think the more you have to do with the media, like you do, Brian, mm-hmm. as well, you've got to learn how to manage them. They're journalists. They want 60-second sound bites. Mm-hmm. They want two sentences. Um, and sometimes you've just got to say, I'm not prepared to answer that. It's mm. too complex. Um, because that's what they're going to do. I mean, it was like the Women's Weekly did a story few weeks ago and got this young journalist and you know and I'd said that I'd had breast cancer and I'm bipolar and um and then just bits and pieces about my younger life and of course immediately she wants to sensationalize mm. what I've been up to and I said look all I'm saying is that I look back on my life and I think I did a lot of self-medicating mm-hmm. to slow myself down because I had this overactive, hypermanic brain mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Oh, well, you know, and what drug, what are they? And I said, look, that is not today's story. No, no. I'm certainly not plastering my misspent use over the <laughs> front page of the Women's Week. Well, you never know, it's a way to guarantee a cover picture, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, now, if I did ask you what your own struggle with bipolarism looked like, and I know it's a massive journey, so I'm I'm not asking you to do it in a ten or fifteen minute, a ten or second second snippet. But how would you describe? It? Because I'm guessing everybody's case when you are bipolar or you do have an anxiety is different. Um, can you like when you had your episode where you thought you were the second coming of the Messiah? Yeah. yeah. Um, for instance, did you feel like you were spinning out of control, or did you have a firm grasp and know you actually were the second coming of the Messiah, or? Well, you see, delusional thinking, or, mm-hmm. you know, because mania, you've got hypermania, which is just bubbling below the surface. Mm-hmm. And then if you go up through that boundary and you get into full-blown mania with psychosis and you become deluded. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Donald Trump's niece, you know, Mary. Yes, I do. Yep. Book, yep. And I was listening to an interview with her the other day. And uh, she was talking about his delusional state. But you see, he's re- we refer to him as a malignant narcissist. Mm. But he hasn't actually been diagnosed, say, with an organic disorder, no. like bipolar, schizophrenia, depression. His is a person- distorted personality construct. Mm. So therefore, in terms of delusions that are part of of the psychosis the brain does actually believe the delusion Mm. so therefore i mean i hate depression i hate being depressed Mm -hmm. but when you're manic until it starts to go weird and you start to get a bit paranoid and this stuff's going on it's actually like having a godhead it's actually like being in nirvana, Mm -hmm. in paradise. And 
you know, like you appreciate everything differently and you'll touch a leaf and it'll make a noise, it'll sound like an orchestra, but, but it's all just so um, amazing mm. that you just think, well, far out, I've mm. arrived. Well, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Well, well would oh, you? yes, you are. Well, yeah, You're yes. going to maximum security lockup <laughs> well, in the yes. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, again, a story for another day, perhaps. Right, so the urban jungle, as you call it, social media... <laughs> certainly isn't helping any of us with angst. Uh, There is Dr. Google for all of our physical, mental and spiritual needs or just basically sort of any deficiencies that we might have. Um, And you mentioned this in the book of angst with um, health anxiety amongst other things. Do you think, is it worth limiting your screen time uh, as a way of looking after your mental health, for instance? Like we very often hear about the connection between kids and their mental health or kids not being able to do this and that Um, but when you turn around and look at the adults that a lot of the children are with they too are on screens as well so do you think it's worthwhile sort of saying hey look actually if you're smart about it you might want to limit some of your screen time here I think that's always smart and it's particularly smart in terms of the conversation we've just had about sleep deprivation Mm. you see you have those blue screens on at night it's going to stimulate the production of adrenaline, mm-hmm. which keeps you awake. Mm-hmm. If you pick up a good old-fashioned book, black print, white paper, it stimulates the production of melatonin, which helps us sleep. So, screen. I mean, more and more now. Um, and then, if you're on that screen till 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, a lot of these young people, for instance, they're not getting out of bed till 11. No. Because they're exhausted, because they've been wired and they're up. Um, and I think that um, that obviously any screen since the invention of television has become a babysitter. Mm. But I strongly believe it's got to be limited, mm. you know. I mean, it's all very well, um, but maybe it would actually be quite even nicer if the family got out into the garden or mm. had a picnic on the back lawn mm. or made some food or something, life skills. Mm. As so many of us were doing during COVID, for instance, the shortage of flour everywhere because people yeah. were baking. Yeah. I know. Uh, yeah, crazy, absolutely crazy. Um, so reducing your, the amount of time that you spend on media apparently is also another good idea for your mental health. And I read somewhere, and you may be able to confirm this, that especially the news that you digest. Um, apparently there's some type of study that, going around that says that people who don't read the news are generally happier than those people who do. You say yay or nay to that theory? Um, yeah, I, yeah, there's got to be an element of truth in that because you know what it's like if you, if you go and visit friends or family and they live in the country. Mm, yep, exactly. Don't really watch a lot of telly. Maybe get the local rag. Yep. You know, too busy on the farm or too busy in the garden. And don't overly concern themselves with all things unhappy. Mm. And I think that the way people read the media um, is also important. Like, you know, Brian, how I've got this thing about shoulds. Yes. I mean, the shoulds have been in every book. Do you like the fact yeah, that like witches this yeah, time? Yeah, I do, yeah. Well, you know, I used to have this guy, he just used to get migraines, he'd read the paper and he'd just, 
headaches, tension, neck, and and I said, well, what are you thinking when you're reading the newspaper? Mm. And much to my surprise, not, he said, well, it shouldn't be like this and they shouldn't be doing this and these people shouldn't and they shouldn't and they should have. Mm. And I said, well, therein lies a problem. Mm. Not wrong. Now, the urban jungle social media has its good side too. However, and you note in the Book of Angst, there were plenty of acts of coronavirus kindness on social media. And while it's a start, do you worry sometimes about the large numbers of celebrities or pseudo-celebrities or social media influencers that are writing books, and I'm asking you this as a professional, that are writing books or life journals on how to make yourself better, how to cope with anxiety or how to make sure that your spiritual well-being is a-okay at the moment. I mean, there seems to be this thing of, and you mention it in the book of angst, and you've mentioned it in your other books as well, of, look, let's be honest, you and I are never going to look like Kim Kardashian, and we probably aren't going to live in her house either, but if we buy Kim's book, she might sort of persuade us that possibly we could maybe one day achieve the lofty heights that she has. It's probably not going to happen, but do you worry about it? Because it does set some people up for some nasty falls, doesn't it? Where I'm most concerned about that sort of stuff is in, you know, Generation Z. Mm -hmm. And if you think that a generation is 14 years, so the Gen Zs, I think, are sort of maybe 23. But anyway, the point being um, is that that generation have had screens since intermediate. Mm. So... And what you're finding with the Gen Zs... Did you see that show on the telly, Brian, called um, The Social Dilemma? Oh, yes, I did, yep. Yeah, well, yep. that social, that professor of social psychology that was on there, I sort of reread the stuff he was putting out, like the increase in self-harm in teenage girls and the increase of suicide and da-da-da-da-da. And um, he also commented that that generation are less likely to have a driver's licence. Mm. And they're also less likely or less prevalent in terms of having a face-to-face date, mm. you know, like a human interaction. And so um, my thoughts are they're the biggest at-risk group. Mm. And do you think that they, obviously they're going to be influenced quite easily. And when you look at things, and we've mentioned this on our last podcast, when you look at the introduction of social media and then you look at the escalating rate of self-inflicted wounds and suicide, they are almost parallel, except one's going in a very upward direction and it's not social media, it's people mm. doing harm to themselves. Do you worry about how easy some of these influences and celebrities could actually influence people over social media just because of that fact? You do know that I don't worry I know that you mind. don't worry. I do, yes, Am I, I do. Am I concerned about it? Probably Remember not. Remember that new word? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Not worry. Yeah. Yep. Um, yes, of course it's a concern. Is there much you can do about it? No. no. Uh, um, celebrities, pseudo-celebrities going to have been on a journey, another word I can't stand, and then they decide to 
mm. publish it and you know and then I have this and then I had the spiritual thing and mm. this that and the other it's not going to be stopped I mean but I think as people become a bit more well as some people become more literate I would hope that they would be more selective in terms of who they're going to pick up and read. Mm. You know, like if, I, if I'm buying a book for myself, for instance, I go to the bibliography, I look at who's being referenced, and if I consider them to have grunt, to be evidence-based, to be scholars, you know, I'll think, yep. But, you know, I don't pick up books that are just, like, written by these pseudos. No, 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 exactly right. So, a uh, question for you from overseas. I told a couple of people you were going to be on, mm. and they went, right, if I lived in the UK or Canada or somewhere like that at the moment and was still in lockdown, and they've been in lockdown, some of them, for over 12 months oh, now. No. Uh, and are really, honestly, heartfelt sort of feelings to you all. Um, what with... What are three things that they could possibly do to help them cope a little bit better during lockdown? Well, good news for that caller. <laughs> um, Overthinking's just been launched in the UK. Yeah, I saw that. That was yeah, excellent. Yeah, and it's doing really well because people are stuck. The stuff's going round and round in their head. Mm-hmm. They can't easily access a therapist etc so you know all jokes aside um my books if someone else had written them you know i'd i'd recommend them Mm. they're they're helpful Mm -hmm. um and you know like there's there's the usual sort of stuff that people talk about the breathing yoga Mm -hmm. i mean there's some great yoga things on the telly Mm. um just even like 15 20 minutes a day and like we were talking about brian go out walking Mm. you know i mean Mm. it's just a drag with the mask but um but you're still out Mm. because during lockdown it was fabulous because there was no traffic no no smell from the fumes Mm -hmm. no noise and and lots of families were out on their bikes, you know, and lots of people were walking, you know, in, in lovely parks and mm. and just like getting in tune with something that's outside of their head, mm. something that's bigger mm. than worry and bigger than anxiety. Mm. Because I tell you what, once we came out of um, level four lockdown, I was saying to one of my neighbours, I said, oh, it's noisy again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I said, oh, and it's the air smells. Yes, yeah. It's actually quite nice without all that stuff. Yeah, I've got to be honest, I remember working the morning that lockdown finished and all of a sudden I had some idea about what it was like to be overwhelmed um, with the sense of sound and just go, yeah. wow, this is so incredibly noisy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, some of the things that people have complained about during lockdown, I've looked at and sort of scratched my head and gone, oh, my Lord, really? Seriously? Uh, the big one for a lot of people that I knew was, I can't go to the gym, which I find utterly ridiculous because, look, let's be honest, 
if you've got a flat surface you can exercise pretty much or a hill you can run up the mm. hill and you, what were some of the most sort of bizarre things that you heard people sort of saying during lockdown but I can't do this anymore Gwendolyn what can I do <clears throat> were there any that come, sort of spring to your mind or not I remember having a conversation about um, we. That's right. I was writing an article for a magazine, and I was talking to the editor, and, and we were just talking about the sort of frustration that comes from entitlement. And so I sort of started listening out for it after we'd had this conversation, and yeah, like with yeah with younger adults in particular, well. You know, we're normally in Vanuatu at this time of the year. Mm, mm-hmm. I'm usually just getting back from the Asawas in Fiji, and now I can't travel, and I don't like it. Mm. You know, yeah. so... Um, yeah, so there was that sort of entitled frustration, but, you know, get over it. Mm. Yeah, exactly right. Now, there are a number of people who will say in society uh, that we are going soft. We've become snowflakes. Health anxiety, goodness me, we never had that in my day. Um, and I very often hear this, like, oh, people will see me reading your books, for instance, and go, oh, my God, what's that all about? We've gone soft, you know, that mm. blah, blah, blah. What would you say to those people if you had sort of the chance to, I'm not going to say beat them around the head with a wet fish, but what would you say if you could say in two or three minutes, oh, look, actually, you need to get a grip here. What would you say to them? And this might be the part where I have to go R-rated on this podcast, more than that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, to me, to say that, oh, well, you know, I'd get over that and so-and-so can get over that, you know, it's, it's a mixture of naivete, but it's also a mixture of sort of bigotry and judgment. Because until you actually know truly what it's like for people that mm. suffer from anxiety just shut up mm. don't have an opinion mm. you know unless you understand the facts just leave it out mm. because opinions about what people should and shouldn't be doing when they're anxious are of no value to anybody mm. Mm. i was having a discussion with a gentleman once who uh, said he was getting a little bit depressed, so he thought, oh, I'll read a couple of self-help books and see how they go. He said, at the time, I was having problems getting out of bed to face the day. He said, the first book I picked up was by somebody who was basically, oh, yes, I've cured myself from depression and I'm going to climb Mount Everest. And he said, good Lord, I'm having enough problems getting out of bed. How am I even going to start there? And, yeah, you're exactly right. Please just don't judge other people. Now, social anxiety seems to be becoming more and more prevalent. Do you think it's because of the rise of social media the in crowd looking cool the pressure to be perfect um like for instance a lot of teenagers these days you know all that photo's not right we'll just do it whereas back in you and i's day oh that's a keeper because we've got no choice because it's been in the pharmacist for a week and a bit um do you think that social anxiety is getting not the lid screw down on it but magnify it glass is getting more and more sort of closer to actually breeding that anxiety but like I said you know if we had a goofy photo on our day we'd all probably just laugh and go ha ah, look at that Gwendolyn's got her eyes closed yeah. in that photo whereas now it's like Phew. yeah do you think that's an issue 
Uh, again, I think that it has. <clears throat> if we, sorry, bro. No if we talk about that um, Gen Z cohort, mm. you know, that takes selfies and then manufacture the selfies so that they look more like Kim Kardashian, mm-hmm. for instance. So you've got it going on there, but I treat people with social anxiety from many generations. Mm. But it was never understood. People thought that it was shyness, Mm. you know, that people were shy. Mm. But I spent quite a bit of time in this book talking about the difference between introversion, extroversion, Mm -hmm. shyness and social anxiety. And um, what we do know is that the introverted child is more likely to, not guaranteed, but is more likely to develop social anxiety. Mm. Um, But, you know, I remember one of the loveliest cases ever. I had this guy come and see me. He was an IT guy. He was just pre-retirement, about 65, and um, came in sort of fully decked out in grey polyester. And um, anyway, so off we went doing the therapy. I flicked him the assessment tool that we used for the fear of judgment, which is actually in the book of angst. Mm-hmm. Um, so we worked on that. His very last appointment <laughs> took about six appointments, probably. Um, his very last appointment, he came in. He had a Hawaiian shirt on, red jeans, blue sneakers. Was on his way to go bungee jumping. And he said to me, Gwendolyn, thank you so much. He said, my only regret is I didn't meet you when I was 15. Mm. I remember reading that book in a book and thinking, that's fantastic. I, I likened it to Billy Connolly always, people talk about Billy Connolly's outlandish fashion sense, yeah. which I absolutely love. Um, I aspire to be him. Um, but he always said that he uses his fashion as an asshole detector. So that when people come up to him before they've even sort of gone, oh, you're Billy Connolly, he said, if they look down at my bright pink shoes and go, you've got to be joking, pal. He says, in my brain, they go, you're an asshole. You haven't even looked me in the face and already you're judging me. I'm off to somebody else. So do you think it's about confidence or do you just think it's about actually um, getting the tools to, as you say in the book, go, ah, that's a feeling. It's not fact. Yep. There, you know, there is, you know, I mean, this is a good thing for those of you that are listening. There's a lot of practical stuff in the book of angst yep. for social anxiety. Lots of stuff. Definitely. That will really make a difference. Because when I write books, like we've talked about before, Brian, I write books for people who can't afford therapy and people that live in areas where they can't get access to a psychologist. Mm. So it's all in there what to do, how to understand it, what to practice. And the only other thought that comes to mind is that it is important to acknowledge the significant part that genetics have to play. Mm. Like OCD, we were talking about before, they estimate like 63%. Well, Mm. I mean, you wouldn't even have cardiology figures that high. And, And the same with social anxiety, it's sort of somewhere in there around at 25-40%. I mean, these are really big predisposition figures. Mm. And just to clarify that for people, 
the introverts are born introverts. They're not socially inadequate. They don't lack confidence. Mm. They just don't make the same amount of noise that extroverts do. <laughs> and the introvert system is calmed and relaxed by a chemical called acetylcholine. The extrovert is stimulated by dopamine, which is a big pleasure transmitter. Mm -hmm. Now, the introverts are not remotely interested in partying and going out and making a noise. And I think that, not because they're inadequate or lack confidence, they just don't want to do it. No, and like, to give you some idea of the detail that Gwendolyn's gone into in this book, she will even tell you what she's thinking when she comes out of her office and you're sitting in her couch and going, looking at the phone or the way that your legs are crossed or something else. So definitely go out and get a copy. When you do the press rounds for your box, I mean, you've done knowing, you've done overthinking, you've done angst. Do you get tired? Because we all want the quick fix. Let's get the quick fix and let's move on now. It's almost sort of a generational habit now. Um, rather than it taking two weeks. If I could do it in 15 seconds, that'd be great. Do you get tired of people looking for the magic bullet, so to speak? Do you ever have somebody come in and you sort of say, well, it's going to take... And it is a long process if you want to get right. It, it is a very long process. Sort of saying, oh, well, you know, I can only probably spare you sort of two or three hours and then we're done. Do you get tired of that or not? I say to people right from the get-go... Let me know when you don't want to come. There's no there's no commitment to spend no. any more time with me than you want to. Um, and, you know, like I said, Brian, in terms of um, the media side of things, I mean, when I get asked those sorts of questions, I just bat the ball back across the court. Mm. Now, when asked recently in an interview, just to prove to you I really do do my research, which literacy character do you most identify with you remember your reply? You said the protagonist. She reminds me of being at a stage in my life where I created dissatisfaction for my life resulting in restlessness and discontentment. And life seems to evolve in its own unpredictable way sometimes. So why waste time making up yourself, making yourself miserable by blaming the world how you are feeling? Now, three best-selling books, and I know that you've had best-selling books before, but really, let's be honest... Mm. In the, in the recent years, three best-selling books in the last couple of years later. Have you softened your stance on yourself a little bit or not? Yeah, I, th- I think I have because creativity's again, it's like I could pick up this book and read a sentence and think, oh, that's quite good. You know, as if I hadn't read it. Mm-hmm. As, sorry, as if I hadn't written it. Mm. And I think that these books have really just given me a sort of a thing which is, hey, I'm actually writing stuff that really helps people. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I guess um, I do feel very comfortable in my own skin, which as far as I'm concerned is uh, the primary objective, isn't it, right? certainly is. Do you like the little cartoons in this one? Oh, I, with the pumpkin, I, I did. I'm not a cherry. <laughs> yeah, I did like that. <laughs> now, uh, have you? Got, I know that you're going to be writing another book later on this year, aren't you? You said, if I remember rightly, the start of winter, is that correct? Um, no yeah, pressure though. Yeah. No, no, when the weather changes. So, right, yeah. good. Uh, can we expect to see the book of 
something. I'm not going to say what title it is, and I don't want you to say it. Cause, oh, you don't want me to well, say it? Well, you can say it if you want. No, you can. Because last time we met, uh, I think you were thinking... About you, social the book, anxiety. Yeah, you were. You were thinking about the Book of Angst, but you weren't quite sort of 100% sold on it. So what's your next book going to be, I'm guessing? Negative Perfectionism. Perfect. Good work. Right. Because all of the things we've talked about today, worry underlines them. But so does perfectionism, like mm-hmm. with the selfies and the body image and the eating disorders and social anxiety. The other very common thread is this unrealistic, unrelenting pursuit of perfection. Mm. Which, look, let's be honest, most of us are never going to get there, but it's about being comfortable with the fact that you're not, eh? In your own skin, Brian. Exactly. If you're a banana, you're a banana. Exactly. You're telling me I'm never going to have long hair, are you, and be six foot four, <laughs> but that's all right. Hey, look, and just to give you some idea, I'm going to leave you with uh, a little bit of a passage from Gwendolyn's book. Gwendolyn, thank you very much for your time again. It's always a pleasure. Um, I'm going to pre-book you in now for the next podcast we do together because right. it's always so much fun. Right. So Gwendolyn says, I hope with all my fingers and toes crossed that we can make and change and learn from this disaster and that she'd like to quote Sonia Renee Taylor who's an author, poet, word artist, speaker, humanitarian, educator and social justice activator. I think it's one of the best quotes I've ever heard. We will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than that we normalise greed and inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate and lack. We should not long to return my friends we have been given the opportunity to stitch a new garment one that fits all of humanity and nature and that's Sonia Renee Taylor and that probably is the final word on the COVID because I think if we can do that we're going bloody well it's not looking good so far though is it Brian? no look let's be fair the way that some of those other countries have sniffed up vaccines it probably isn't but that's a story for another day thanks again Gwendolyn Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.